There are some things we believe as Christians that are not hard for me to believe. They just don't take a lot of um, convincing for me. One of them is that God created everything. When I look at the world, it would take a lot of faith, faith for me to believe that a powerful, wise, uh, to, to disbelieve that a powerful, wise God created all of this. I, I, I look at the world, I look at human beings, and I just can't imagine not believing there's some amazing uh, being behind that. I do not have a hard time believing that I'm a sinner, <laughs> that I've got a sin problem. I do not have a hard time believing that you are a sinner. I uh, look, at, look at the human race and read the news, and it couldn't be more obvious that we've got a sin problem in the world that we desperately need a solution to. Uh, there are, are things that aren't hard for me to believe as a Christian. There are some things that require a lot of faith and, and continual uh, just trust that God is actually telling the truth when he tells us something. One of those things that's very hard for me to believe is found in John 16. So I, I want to read it together with you because I want to invite you into the deepening of faith and belief in what Jesus says, even though I find it very hard to believe. I believe it, but it's, it's hard for me to believe in a regular way. So let's pray together as we go to the Word. Lord, thank you for your Word. Thank you that it tells us things that seem to square quite well uh, with what we would assume is true. In other times, Lord, you jolt us and make uh, us move toward belief in something that's harder. So Lord, now as we move toward um, this passage, I pray that you'd help us by the Spirit's work to understand exactly what you want us to, that you would penetrate our hearts with this truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John 16, beginning of verse 1, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's talking to us. Here's what he says. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. So Jesus is very concerned that we stay abiding in Him, walking with Him, depending on Him, and we don't drift, we don't fall away. Consistency in our lives with Him is what He's after here. They will put you out of the synagogues. Persecution will come. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you, they'll not only put you out of the synagogue, but you'll be killed. Persecution will be that bad. Whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. Jesus is foretelling his death and his resurrection, but then his ascension. He is returning to the Father from where he came, and he's, in that sense, leaving them. He says, I've told you that I'm leaving. And what does he say? And I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But, because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. You're sad 
at the prospect of my departure. Sorrow has filled your heart. And then here is what is hard for me to believe, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. How could that be true? How could it be true that it's better that Jesus is not here the way he was for 33 years on this earth? How could it be better? Imagine the disciples hearing him say that. They've been with him three years. They've come to depend on him. They've come to see him as the way, the truth, and the life. He's their master, their Lord, their friend, their shepherd, their king, their savior. And now he says, I'm leaving and that's better for you. You can see why this is hard for me to believe, and I'm sure it was hard for them to believe. How could it be better that Jesus not remain with them in the flesh as he had for those years? How could it be better that he leave? I'm so glad he tells us. Here it is. It is to your advantage. You are in an advantageous place for me to leave. Why? For. Here it is. This is the explanation. If I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the parakletos, the one who comes alongside us, cares for us, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In God's perfect wisdom, in his economy, uh, the way he works in saving us, in making us like Jesus, in deepening our intimacy with him and our holiness, he says, the way I've orchestrated things is the best thing for you. And the way I've orchestrated things is... Jesus will leave and the Spirit will come. The Father will send the Spirit. The Son will send the Spirit because he's saying it's a better thing for him, the Holy Spirit, to work in the way he works than the way I've worked for the past 33 years in the flesh, on earth, with you in a tangible way. He's saying there will be a fulfillment of all of these Old Testament promises of the coming of the Spirit that is an advantageous way for God to work in your life. This is very hard for me to believe. I'm a person like most who are very tangibly wired. It's always a basic assumption I have that it's better that I have something right here that's, that's tangible, that I can touch and experience in a more physical way than that I disp- depend on the Holy Spirit. That seems so vague and abstract and not what I really need. I need Jesus right here face to face so I can talk to him. And he says, no, it's better that the Spirit comes and mediates my presence in a way 
that indwells the hearts of my people like they've never experienced before. There is coming a day, the Old Testament says, when the Spirit will come in power that will bring an indwelling around the earth that advances God's work and deepens our experience with Him, our knowledge of Him, our understanding of Him, that is far better than if Jesus had stayed as He had been. That's our challenge this morning, to believe that the Spirit at work in the way He is now in this phase of salvation history is the best way. And although, yes, we do long for and look forward to the day of Christ's return bodily, in this era of church history, God has decided that the very best way for Him to work is through the Spirit Mediating his presence, bringing his comfort, caring for us. And as we see, look, he gets more detail, doesn't he? I'll send him to you. Then verse 8, and when he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. In other words, the very gospel truths we've been talking and singing about this morning are what the Spirit will bring to understanding in people around the world. He'll bring gospel truth to them, an understanding of our sin that we were clueless to before, an understanding of righteousness that we had all twisted up before that, and judgment that God is the one to whom we answer. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. He goes on, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. See, God, God is gracious in revealing himself to us by the Spirit's work in ways that we can handle. Imagine if God revealed everything to you about your sinful nature and condition and attitudes and habits all at once. <laughs> ah, I'm just so grateful he's, he's taken his time in convicting me of sin not all at once. I would, I would be undone. I would disintegrate if he just did it all. But he says, you, you can't bear it right now. But the Spirit's going to come, and he's going to do a kind work in convicting of sin and bringing an understanding of righteousness and judgment that is going to be timed perfectly. He's going to bring it to the whole world. Jesus says, verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me. If Jesus is to be exalted, it will be through the Spirit's work. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said to you, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit comes and he brings a ministry that we need desperately and that Jesus says is the very best way for him to work. This morning, we're going to think about what it means to live Spirit-empowered lives. This Sermon this morning is the conclusion of a series we've done all summer called Habits of Grace. We really wanted to step back this summer and take a departure from our normal way of doing things around here, which is preaching through books of the Bible, trusting that God has what we need when we do that, 
and we depend on the scriptures in that way. But now we took a pause this summer from that normal procedure and said, let's spend some good time thinking about how it is we grow. We realize that we become Christians. We become children of God, saints of God, forgiven children of God by grace through faith in Christ. His finished work is what does it for us. But we then at that point just don't sort of settle there, but we begin a relationship that matures over time and grows and develops and deepens over time. And there's a role our daily activities play in that relational development, that growth over time. And so we wanted to think, all right, what is it? What are the means of grace that we avail ourselves to by which we grow? And we've called this Habits of Grace from a book by David Mathis. And we like this title because of the tension between these two words, habits and grace. And we said habits were spiritual disciplines, so it is an effort to grow spiritually. So even as we may be very weak physically, we realize that there is a strength spiritually that we are to have. And we practice these with our bodies, so it, it's not a disembodied spiritual experience, but an embodied one. And it's mostly a normal life rooted in the local church. And then intention with habits, which we've got to have a category for, is this word grace. They are habits. They're things you do habitually. They're things you do as a normal course of life. They're a pattern in your life. Now, my grandparents' generation did not have a hard time with words like habits or disciplines or words like tradition or formal things we did. But, wow, the younger generation struggles with that. It sounds so fake. It sounds inauthentic. It sounds forced. And the last thing we want is empty religion, religiosity. Last thing we want is going through the motions. But there is a place for habits, things we do. Caroline just started at, it's all right, dear. Caroline just started at La Habra High School. And um, that's a big, complicated place. She's been homeschooled for the last seven years. And... Um, and so I was ha happy about this possibility, but I also, as a father who cares about my girl, was, was wanting her to have a, a good frame of reference. So I said, Caroline, if you're going to go to Labra High School, you're going to get up at least four mornings a week and read, and read your Bible and pray with your dad. That's what we're going to do. And three weeks now, you've been doing it. It's become a habit, hasn't it? After three weeks, it's just, and it's, it's having an effect on both of us and our relationship. It's beautiful. And it doesn't take long before something gets woven into your daily routine, your daily life. And so habits aren't necessarily a bad thing. They're actually a necessary thing for us to maintain relationships in general and with God. We weave into our daily lives regular patterns that add up to relational depth and relational growth. We attend to these relationships with a regular practice that deepens them. So when we think about uh, habits, we've got to have a very positive view of it. Yes, we don't want the, the merely dutiful, empty religiosity that habits can become where our brains shut off and we just go through the motions. We don't want that at all. But then let's not go to the other extreme and think that it's just sort of just uh, some wild side organic experience that doesn't have any regularity in our lives. And so uh, we've got to have a place for this, a category for that. 
But the whole time, so we don't fall into legalistic, dutiful, merely living, we have an understanding that it is grace, that the growth that comes from this is not some fleshly human accomplishment, but the whole point of these habits is to get to the end of ourselves and express a dependence on God and a yielding to his work in our lives. And that's why this growth in godliness is always a gift from God through the kind ministry of the Holy Spirit, which will be our primary point today. It doesn't mean we, we don't have any activity in this, but we realize the whole time that it's God at work in us that does this. That's why true habits of grace never lead to arrogant sense of accomplishment that check me out. And that's why we need to check our motives. Why am I doing this? Am I seeking to be prayerful so I will be admired as a prayerful person? Or so that I can grow in my relationship with God and glorify Him in my life. So there's a good tension here. And we said the goal of this is intimacy with God. It's enjoyment of God, which is the primary reason we were created, which bears fruit and glorifies Him, which is the working out of this good news of the gospel that God has saved us through His Son by faith. 1 Peter 3 is a passage we started with. For Christ also suffered once for sins, never need to be repeated again. It's completely sufficient, Jesus suffering, his death for us. The righteous for the unrighteous, so it's not just his sacrificial death, but his righteous obedience that takes the place of our disobedience, that he might bring us to God. That's the point. So the point ultimately is not even forgiveness or righteousness. The point ultimately is not a virtuous life or a even character that conforms to Christ, although that's uh, vital and wonderful, but the point of all of that is to bring us to God, is to restore a relationship with God that's tragically lost in the fall, and that's the point of all of it. We're brought to God, and then our lives then are marked by the flesh, non-spirit-based living, being put to death, and we're now made alive in our spirits that were formerly dead. God does this for us. That's what he accomplishes for us in our place. And this brings this intimacy with God and enjoyment of him. So we realize this. And if you come here this morning, the last thing I want you to leave with is the impression that the Christian life is fundamentally about all these activities we do so that we become better people. Yes, that's part of what's going on. But that actually is a very human-centered way to think about it. It's not so I get my act together. Although that's a means by which I am brought to God. I am forgiven and declared righteous and adopted into his family so that I can have a relationship with him. Not just so that I can experience an existential security or peace, although that's part of the deal. It's ultimately all about God. And sometimes the Christian life can be really no different than just a self-help movement. And that's not what it is. And so if you're here this morning and, and you've thought of the Christian life as most other religions, which is about what we do for God, this is all about what he's done for us. So it, it is all gift. It's all grace. He brings us to God. And then we cultivate through habits of grace this deepening relationship. And we, we've highlighted these nine things. There are other things that we could talk about that help us grow, that avail ourselves to God's work in our lives. But we've highlighted these. There are some we could add, but please realize that in our thinking, 
as we put this together, there are some very important things in our growth that are embedded in these other things. Take worship, for instance. When we think of worship, we include means of grace like the Lord's Supper. And, and for that matter, we, when we think of proclamation, we think of the Lord's Supper as well because that's proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. And so there are some very important habits of grace that are, are, are woven, embedded in some of these as a necessary thing. So we, we highlighted a sermon on each of these nine. We started with an intro. Now we're concluding with the spirit enabling in all of these things. These are the nine habits of grace we looked at. Uh, typically at Grace, if you haven't been here very long, you may not know that we will often begin series through books of the Bible with a reading service, which we're going to actually have in two weeks when we start Second Peter. But then we'll, uh, several months in, have a pause and we'll have a reflection service where we will turn it over to the congregation to hear how's the Word been working in the preaching, in the series we've been going through. And we don't have one planned this time, but I love those times so much, I'm going to put one right in the middle of my sermon. So we're going to have a mini reflection service right now. It's kind of just like a, a bigger grace group meeting. Think of a reflection service like that. So if you're in a grace group, we go home and talk about how is this working itself out in your life? How are these habits? And we'll just do that collectively now. So I'm eager to hear from some of you. A lot of you are probably gone for some of these like I was. But I'm eager to hear how God has helped you as we look through these this Summer. So, does anybody have a reflection for us? What reflections do you have that could help us think through these a little bit better? Well, one of the things that I, I love about these reflections we've just heard is the way um, there's almost an impossibility of just isolating one of these habits because of how interdependently they all work. And that, that was one of the first points we made when we started this series, that, that we've got to see these habits of grace working interdependently. So, if we're going to be men and women of the Word, we've got to do that prayerfully, or it will be a merely academic, merely intellectual exercise if it's not a spiritual activity done prayerfully. And if we're going to pray, we better take our instruction from the Scriptures and how you do that and what that looks like. And if the word and prayer aren't done worshipfully in a way that, a way that fuels worship, then it's not what it's supposed to be. And if these things don't lead to uh, giving generous spirit in light of what God has shown us is true of himself toward us, then there's a disconnect there as well. And as we said, proclamation includes things like worship in the Lord's Supper, and fellowship has got to be this this web in which all of these things happen. And so these work interdependently uh, with one another. So uh, just we're going to highlight two of these this morning. They look mostly normal. Let's not over-spiritualize spirituality. They take discipline. It's just something we commit ourselves to. And they should be rooted in the local church. We haven't set aside a whole sermon for this, but I hope that you've seen how important it is that the primary place we work out our relationship with God is the local church. Uh, look what Hebrews says. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, 
as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we're commanded to be part of the fellowship of the saints that takes place in a local church context. That may not be really obvious to you. You might be able to read that and say, well, as long as I meet together with one or two Christian friends, that fulfills what it's after. When the New Testament talks this way, it's talking about a local church meeting together, usually around the Lord's Supper, the first day of the week, where you're part of a meaningful local church body. And so that all these habits of grace you devote yourself to are done in the context of the local church. So it's not just you and the Lord and your Bible in the morning. It's also you sitting under the preaching of the word like you are right now. You're actually obeying this passage right now. Gathering together as God's people, working out all of these habits of grace in the context of the local church. That's the primary identification we have. That's the primary home, family, uh, source of authority and discipline in our lives. The context this is worked out in is the local church. So that's this, this point. But also, the habits of grace are spirit-empowered, we said, and they kill sin. The more we are devoting ourselves to growing and God's spirit is bringing that about, we will see a progressive killing off of sin in our lives and a living to righteousness. Doesn't mean it happens all at once or there aren't detours in that and and some some, uh, going backwards at times, but generally speaking, there's a trajectory toward holiness in our lives. We're more like Jesus now than we were five years ago. That's, That's what's going on in the life of the believer. Uh, And finally, habits of grace, as we've said, express and enable enjoyment with God. But number uh, numbers five is what I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about. What does it mean to depend on the Spirit for these things? Again, they include real, physical, normal-looking activities woven into our days, but they must be done in a way that's dependent on the Spirit. And that's what I want to think about. And I want to do it by actually walking through all nine of these habits of grace um, and show you just one passage. We could have looked at dozens, but I just want to show you at least one passage where not just in general we need to be spirit-led, spirit-empowered people, but in each detail and specific habit of grace and everything in life, we need to be spirit-empowered and enabled. Uh, So I I want to look at all nine, not in order, that may bother some of you, but I did a little more thematically than just going through the list of the nine habits. But uh, what does it mean to be spirit-empowered? What does it mean in all of these to be spirit-empowered? Look at Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the very same Spirit of God that was at work in Jesus' ministry actually bringing about his incarnate in flesh state in the first place in the virgin conception and who is anointing him at his baptism when he begins his public ministry, who leads him out, the Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted, who enables Jesus to rejoice, we're told, in the Spirit. The Spirit of God is at work in the life of Jesus and his human ministry and he needs to be in ours as well. And he's the one who brings us to life as well. So Jesus is raised from the dead, and the Spirit brings that about. And the Bible says that we are raised to life 
by that very same spirit. Life is brought to our mortal bodies spiritually and eternally by that same spirit that brought Jesus to life. If you're a new creature in Christ, if by faith you've turned from sin and self to Christ and his sacrifice and righteousness, it's a spirit wrought aliveness to God that has brought that about. So we're dependent on the spirit. And so let's look at every one of these habits of grace and how they're spirit dependent. You want to be a man or woman of the word? We need to depend on the spirit. We impart this Paul says his message he's giving to the Corinthians in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. You can have an accurate cognitive understanding of what the Bible's saying, but it's not necessarily Spirit-transforming truth. I went to a big state university, and one of my favorite professors, who I just adored, was a, a very eccentric, um, disheveled man who looks exactly like a professor should look, right? Hair's always crazy and just shuffling in and, and absent-minded, but brilliant and, and curious and fascinating. Paul Beeching, he was the dean of arts and sciences and the head of the honors program at my university. And he was, I was probably closer to him than any other professor. And he taught New Testament as literature. And I had him for that. And he loved to read the New Testament in Greek. And he delighted in that. And much of the time, he had a very accurate understanding of what the New Testament was teaching. But he was an atheist. He didn't even believe God existed And so it was very important for me to realize there's a difference between having an intellectual understanding of what the Bible's saying that's accurate to the intention of the author even, but not have it be transformative. Where Paul Beeching didn't worship Christ because of what he found in the Bible. He didn't obey Christ because of what he found in the Bible. He didn't adore him. It didn't lead him to worship. It didn't lead him to obedience. He was intrigued by my relationship with Jesus. But he understood the Bible in a way that was accurate, but not life-changing. And so we need the Spirit to bring about life-changing understanding of truth. That's very different than Paul Beeching's was. How about prayer? You want to be a prayerful person? How do you do that? The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we... Uh, what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I can't remember a time in my life I wasn't uh, in relationship with Jesus. It happened at a very young age. My mother read the Bible to me uh, when I was I could barely keep my head up. You know how babies do that. And, and I, I could barely keep my head up and my mother was already reading the Bible to me. And at some point at a very young age, I became aware that Jesus was the Savior I needed. And he's, he's been the defining person, reality of my life as long as I can remember. And I've been at this a long time, but there's no way I feel more immature than in my prayer life. Prayer is a war for me. It's a battle. It's a struggle. It's one of those things I have a hard time believing in. And I do struggle. And, and by the way, I want to recommend a really good book I'm halfway through. It may go south in the second half, so I better be careful. But I doubt it. It's called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. So helpful. But um, in my prayer life, 
I feel so immature. I am so thankful no one has ever secretly recorded me praying in the morning and then played it publicly. You would have lots of questions for me. Eric, you keep repeating yourself. That was not a smart thing to pray for that person. That was actually a very selfish, motivated prayer right there, Eric. Eric, what's this big 15-minute gap in this prayer? It was a nap, actually. Um, just got in there. And you, you, would, you would find an unplanned nap in the middle of my prayers. And, and you would find all sorts of immaturity there. And it could really distress me if... This wasn't true. God in his kindness sends the spirit who moves into my life and says, Eric, I got this. I know it's in your heart. I'm going to take what you're completely clueless about and frail in doing, and I'm going to translate your prayers before the throne so that they're just what they should be. He's kind like that, and he does that for us. If we seek to pray independent of the Spirit's work, we don't understand prayer at all. Prayer itself is grounded in an utter sense of dependence on God. So why in the world would we ever think of praying independently of God? It's not really prayer, then, that we're doing. It's something else. And so so you want to be prayerful? You depend on the Spirit. You want to be worshipful? Depend on the Spirit. We are the circumcision, the true representation of the people of God in the new covenant who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. I have always been an artist wannabe. I'm not creative and artistic at all. And I've often thought how wonderful to be able to play the piano like Joyce or sing like, uh, like Jordan or, or like these musicians up here. Or, uh, it, it's just always been something I thought would be good. And Kenny gives me a hard time for this. Like one time I said to him, Kenny, what I wouldn't give to be able to play the guitar like you. And he says, well, I know one thing you wouldn't give, 15 minutes a day. That's all it really takes. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, okay. Um, uh, but, but I'm glad I, I, part of me, though, is glad I can't sing like Melissa Schubert because I know people who are gifted musically have a battle to fight in the midst of sung worship that I don't have, right? I, I'm never going to be tempted to sing out so people will be impressed with how I sound. But worship can become something that is just performance. It's just something to demonstrate my chops. And I'm glad I don't have any chops to demonstrate. I don't have that battle to fight. It's actually quite freeing. And I love it. But I'm thankful for those who have to fight that battle. But worship is a spirit-enabled thing. So the most beautiful music in the world can be ugly to God when it's done in a way that's just fleshly, just so you think I'm great or so that, that you're impressed or so that I merely enjoy this. And not truly spirit-enabled glorifying of God, adoring God that the Spirit brings about. We worship by the Spirit and glory then in Christ Jesus, not in our singing gifts. 
or worship however we express it, ability, and put no confidence in the flesh. That's really the bottom line. You can't have confidence in the flesh and do things by the Spirit. And when you do things by the Spirit, the confidence isn't in the flesh, the mere human means. You want to be a certain, now here I get out of order, if some of you, will, this, this will drive you crazy, so just think what issues you need to work on so that it doesn't. But now I skip one and, and go to serving. You want to serve? You, you have to depend on the Spirit. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. How about that for a way to define service? What is service? It's a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. A manifest, that's how you define service. A Spirit manifestation for the good of others. It's not something done in flesh. Again, you can do the same activity that from the outside looks the same, but from God's perspective is not. Because one is done in the flesh, one is done in the Spirit. And my first prayer in these things is, Lord, show me the difference. Because people can be very impressed with service that's fleshly. And it actually can have a benefit to some people in some ways, but it's not what God delights in. It's not what truly brings the transformation we're after, intimacy with Him we're after. So we serve depending on the Spirit. I'm combining six and nine now. Proclamation of the Great Commission, because I think Acts 1.8 nails this for both of them missions and evangelism. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Is this amazing? Jesus gives the Great Commission to His disciples. He says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded and don't you budge in doing that until the Spirit comes. Don't even think of packing your bags until the Spirit comes in power like He did on the day of Pentecost, like the Old Testament promised He would. Then you go. Then you go to fulfill the Great Commission. Then you go to your neighbor to talk, your coworker to talk to him about Christ, depending on the Spirit's power. Evangelism, discipleship, missions is dependent upon the Spirit's power. That's why we wait till He comes in power at Pentecost. Fellowship is said to be this. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, which there is, any comfort, of course there is, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. So Christian unity, Christian fellowship, Christian growth together comes by the Spirit. It's a fellowship that the Spirit brings to us. We depend on Him for more than just a social group. If I did not believe Jesus rose from the dead, you wouldn't find me anywhere near a church. Some of the hardest people for me to understand is religious people who are in Christian churches who don't believe Jesus actually is alive. I joined the Rotary, a bowling league, anything but the church for my social interaction that doesn't require anything like the church does. But because Jesus rose from the dead and it's his church, I go to the fellowship of the Spirit that he brings and it ends up way better than a bowling league or the rotary. Uh, and giving, I want you to notice that he, we wait for the Spirit to come, and He brings a fellowship when the Spirit does come in Acts 2, and then what do we see 
is the result. So he comes, he enables proclamation and missions, and listen to this description of the people of God right after Pentecost, right after the Spirit comes in power. All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need, and there was not a needy person among them. When the Spirit comes, there's a generosity. There's a giving spirit. There is a lavish care for one another where there's not a needy person among them. That's just amazing. And then finally, suffering. Suffering is something we do rightly when we do it in the Spirit's power. We rejoice in our sufferings. What? How does that happen? (laughs) Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. And usually, we stop memorizing there. I think I did when I memorized this passage for the first time. I stopped right there. How tragic. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How can we rejoice in sufferings? How can we have the perspective we need when we're suffering? We can because the Spirit pours an understanding, an experience of God's love into our hearts that enables us to suffer with joy in a way we never could otherwise. Uh, The Old Testament put it this way, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. What does it mean for us to not to depend on fleshly, mere human means to increase intimacy with God and deepen in our relationship with Him and our enjoyment of Him? We've got to be vigilant about thinking this through well. So we look at every one of these habits, and we don't just think growth is by the Spirit, but being in the Word is. What does it mean for me to be more Spirit-dependent as a man of the Word? To be more Spirit-dependent as a prayerful person? What does it mean for me to be more worshipful in a Spirit-enabled way? That's not just dependent on mere fleshly human means, but but, but go to times of worship saying, Lord, please, would you enable me to worship you in spirit and in truth in a way that is not just me conjuring up some feeling, but what you have for me. So every one of these things, and not just habits of grace, but what does it mean for you to be a school teacher in a spirit-empowered way? A mother or father in a spirit-empowered way. It's amazing how we rush into situations with our children, trying to fix it with all the, the, the tools and things we've acquired instead of getting on our knees and saying, Lord, you've got to work in me, in, in, in him. You've got to help me, Lord, by the Spirit's power to be a father the way you would have me and to be an employee or employer or student, Whatever, or a neighbor, or a son, or a daughter, or whatever it is, God has you in these roles to do it in a spirit-empowered way. What does it mean to be a spirit-filled neighbor? A spirit-filled shopper at Stater Brothers. What does that mean? A spirit-filled sitter in traffic. What does that mean for us? To to go to God and say, Lord, help me to live a spirit-empowered, spirit-filled, spirit-dependent way. We've got to be vigilant about seeking out lives depending on Him. And then there will be a freedom and a joy and a rest even as we stay very active in our growth process as God works in us. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We, um, We struggle to believe these things are true. 
we struggle to believe that the Spirit's work is vastly more important than the, the best laid plans we may have. The strategies, the, the, the efforts, the, the merely talent that you've given us. Lord, please help us to realize that nothing happens that really matters or lasts or truly glorifies or pleases you if the Spirit's not behind it all. Help us, Lord, to depend on Him like never before as individuals, families, churches. Uh, Lord, help us in these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.